Good morning, and welcome to week 18 of our being scattered together. Every time I say another bigger number like that, it feels worse, but uh, welcome all the same. Thank you for being here today, part of our scattered gathering, wherever it is you're gathering today. Um, I want to thank you as well to those of you who sent in, you kids who sent in pictures of Jesus from Revelation 1. Those were awesome, and we're going to get those up uh, either here in our video or we'll put it on our Facebook page, but we want you to, everyone to see those amazing pictures. Who knows what it looked like, but your pictures are pretty cool, so thank you for doing that. We're going to have a time now. We're going to look at a passage from God's Word. We'll talk about what it means, why it matters, and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible with you, if you would turn to our passage today in Revelation chapter 2. Beginning at verse 1, these are now letters to seven different churches that John transcribes for Jesus as he dictates them. So let's see this letter that Jesus writes to the church at Ephesus, chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. John, for Jesus, writes this, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But this, I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you, have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. It's God's word. Let me just pray for us quickly, ask God's blessing on this time and his word, and then we'll dig into this letter. Spirit of God, uh, as you speak to us today through this word, I pray that you would open every heart, every ear, every mind to receive what it is you want to speak to us today. God, would you remove every obstacle, every distraction, anything that would be in our way right now and cause us to focus in on you and to not just be those who are hearers of your word, but doers. Change us by this word, God, and accomplish the purpose for which you send it out today, just as you've even accomplished that in me this week. And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. So uh, many of you will know if you've been at our church for any length of time that a number of years ago, before I became the pastor of this church, I was pursuing a career as a firefighter in the fire department. And in one of the recruitments that I was a part of, I, uh, this was in the Surrey Fire Department actually, I was uh, extended on, I made it on to the ride-along stage, which is a big deal uh, for me anyway. It's where uh, I get placed in two different departments for two consecutive two-day-long shifts where they test my skills, uh, my knowledge, and really just kind of my general relatability with other firefighters. And I'm not going to bore you with all the details. I love this stuff. But um, one of the skills, just talk about this in particular, uh, which I was tested on, was 
What do you do when you arrive at a fire in a fire truck? Uh, it's about connecting the fire truck to the fire hydrant. We take a really big hose and connect the fire truck there to give it water supply. And then I run a smaller hose off the side of the fire truck, 50 feet down to where the fire is. And the, ho- the hope is, if at least if I've done everything correctly, call for water. I open the nozzle. Water should come out of the hose. That means you've done it right. And so, man, I studied so hard. I, I worked again and again to make sure that I knew how this went, how the steps all went, so that on the day when I was tested, I carried out each one of those steps perfectly so that, sure enough, when I called for water and opened the nozzle, ta-da, water came out, and it was a great day, and I felt so excited and, and felt really just kind of this sense of like pride and accomplishment, like, yeah, I did that. And I remember the captain, he came over, he congratulated me on my effort and my hustle, but before we broke everything down, put the hoses away, the captain, he, he walked me over to the fire hydrant uh, that I had been working on, and he asked me whether or not I believed I had opened the fire hydrant all the way or not. I was sure that I had, and yet, and my heart just sank within me when I turned that wrench on top of the fire hydrant and found it turned once. Twice, three times, four and a half times altogether, meaning that the fire hydrant, the, the, the opening was only open like maybe 75%. So a mistake, which the captain rightly reminded me, was a mistake that could mean the difference between having enough water supply to put out a fire or not, between saving someone's life or not. And it's a point that I never forgot from that day, that, that you can follow all the right steps properly. You can perform them in the, in the right order and, 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 and do the actions correctly. But if you don't have enough water to put out the fire, all those other actions and efforts ultimately become meaningless. So we're continuing in this summer teaching series through the first three chapters of the book of Revelation, entitled Dear Church. And as we move now into the first of these seven letters to seven different churches, what we're going to see here in this letter today is that what Jesus wants to communicate to the church at Ephesus is a lesson very similar to the one that my captain had for me that day beside the fire hydrant. Namely, Jesus is saying to this church, you're you're following the steps exceptionally well, church. You're doing everything so well. Your your efforts are, are admirable. You're doing this all so well, and yet, What you're missing, the thing that you're missing right now is actually making all those other admirable efforts ultimately become meaningless. We're going to dig into exactly why that is as we look at this passage deeper this morning. But here's the thing that we need to keep in front of us as we're looking at at any of these letters, really. That although these seven letters were written to real historic churches in the Roman province of Asia in the first century near the end, What we need to understand is, again, remembering the book of Revelation is written in this style or genre of apocalyptic literature, which means uh, symbols and numbers and things all mean different things. And so knowing as well from that that the number seven that John uses repeatedly through the book of Revelation is a number that symbolizes completeness or perfection, which means ultimately these letters are, are, are also written to every church in every generation from the time period when this letter was first written all the way through to today. 
It's very just simply this, to say this, that the letter written that Jesus wrote to the church at Ephesus is a letter written to us. This is a letter to the church that gathers at Dunbar Heights Baptist Church. And the lesson that Jesus had for that church back then is also still very much a lesson for us today. And so in order that we might learn that lesson, I pray heed its warning in our own lives as well as in the life of our church. I want to look at what Jesus reveals in this church as the fatal flaw and then the required remedy. The fatal flaw and the required remedy. So if you have closed your Bibles, your Bible app, whatever it is, would you open it again with me to that passage, Revelation 2, beginning at verse 1, and follow along with me as we look at this letter to the church at Ephesus, which is still very much a letter to the church today. Okay, so let's look first of all at the fatal flaw. The fatal flaw. Look with me at verse 1. You'll notice that Jesus begins this opening to the letter of the church as he does in each of these seven letters by including a portion, or in this case, portions, of the picture that John gave of Jesus in his exalted state back in chapter 1 that we looked at last week. And in this case, to the church at Ephesus, he includes two images, the one of Jesus as the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, as well as the one who dwells among the seven lampstands. And although it's a subtle detail, the point that, that Jesus is trying to make is that that exalted picture that John gave us back in Revelation uh, chapter 1 and, and the author of this letter are one and the same person. He's trying to connect those two pictures. But as to who or, or what is being referred to by the angel of the church, which you see also at the beginning of each of these letters, uh, there's much less clarity, actually. Um, commentators suggesting that this angel is being everything from the pastor or the bishop of the church to a guardian angels that have been assigned to each one of the churches. There's much less clarity as far as what exactly John is referring to there as he records this letter for Jesus. But as Leon Morris helpfully points out, he says, although the greeting is to the angel of the church in Ephesus, there's no doubt that the message is to the church. And so as the one who dwells in the midst of these seven lampstands, who, who, who walks among them, uh, and again, we learned in verse 20 of chapter 1 that these lampstands symbolize each one of the churches. As the one who walks among them, who dwells among them, Jesus goes on to reveal now, as he does in each of the letters, what he knows about these churches. In each one of the letters, you'll see Jesus say, I know, I know this about you. And he can say that because he dwells among them. Revealing, in this case, in the church of Ephesus, revealing it to be a church, at least initially, that checks virtually every box of what you would want to see included in a church. I mean, this church is, is incredible. Um, they, they're those who are working hard, a hard-working church where everyone's laboring together. They, they are a church that's patiently enduring this persecution that we've been talking about, not growing weary as they do it, and it's a church that takes their faith and the integrity of the church seriously. These are, these are people that know their Bibles so well that when false teachers, like these Nicolaitans that you see in verse 6, come in claiming to be apostles, as the apostle Paul warned would happen, but Paul planted this church and he warned them back in Acts 20, false teachers are going to come in. He warned them this, but they know their Bibles so well that when they start teaching false doctrine, they can say, test it against the Bible and be like, no, you're fakes. They just, they, they're so in tune. Like, this is an awesome, doctrinally secure church. And then, if you just look at the lineage of this church, planted by the Apostle Paul, 
pastored by Paul's protege, Timothy, and then following Timothy's death, now pastored by the Apostle John. And church tradition tells us the congregation may have even included Jesus' mother, Mary, uh, who, remember, Jesus handed on to John on the cross. She, they say, possibly was part of the congregation. I mean, this church is a crazy who's who Hall of Fame kind of church. I want to be part of this church. And my guess is, initially, as they started reading this letter, the church at Ephesus may have felt some of the very same kind of pride and satisfaction that I felt that day after completing my skills assessment with Missouri Fire. It's kind of like, hey, we are doing well, until they get to verse 4. And all of a sudden, Jesus drops a truth bomb on this church and reveals a fatal flaw in this otherwise all-star church, adding this. Look at verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you have at first. And I don't know about you, but when, when I read that, I'm like, okay, wow. Like, I guess it doesn't land with the same kind of weight and importance initially that Jesus is giving to it until we read on into verse 5. And then we learn that Jesus isn't just telling this church, hey, play nicer. Uh, hey, um, your loveless condition is causing the church's reputation to be sullied. No, he says your loveless condition is serious enough as to be fatal to the church's very existence. That's how important it is. So all of a sudden, I'm sure they were just like, whoa, what? Like, this is a bit like when you go to the doctor and he reads your test results and you're like, oh, okay, so what, what do I take for that? What's the treatment? And your doctor's like, no, 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 you don't need... You don't need to take medication, you don't need treatment. I'm booking an OR right now. We need to operate immediately or you're not going to survive. Like it's that important all of a sudden. But look at verse 5 again. Note carefully. It's not the loveless condition itself that is going to cause this church to cease to exist. It's the presence of this loveless condition within the church that will cause Jesus to remove the lampstand himself. So this is not a cancer that it's just going to cause them to self-implode. Jesus says, because you have this loveless condition, I'm going to remove your lampstand. And as the Lord over the church, as well as the one who holds the seven stars of the churches, which are the angels of the seven churches, in his right hand, he has every right and authority and power to do. But why would he do that? Why? Because maybe that seems like a wildly unjust consequence it doesn't seem to fit the crime that loveless condition would cause jesus to remove the whole lampstand but the problem with that conclusion is that it fails to remember when you look at god's revelation of himself in general both in the bible as a whole as well as in the life and ministry of jesus in particular you discover just how often love is presented as both the motivation behind god's actions his gracious actions towards us as well as being one of the essential elements of his very nature, and you begin to see why love is such a big deal to God and why the absence of it in those who claim to be followers of his is such a big deal. For instance, if you go back to the Old Testament, you look at God's revelation of himself to Moses on Mount Sinai, Exodus 34. He describes himself as the Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. That's who I am, says God. Or then in the New Testament, a verse we love to, to quote, you see it in every end zone at a football game, John 3, 16, where Jesus says that, that the motivation, the primary motivation behind the saving work of God in sending Jesus to earth to redeem us, to reconcile us, is love. 
God so loved the world that he did this. And yet, God help us, we need to hear this in every generation of every church at all times and generations. Love is not merely one of the primary descriptions of the character of God or one of the primary motivational forces behind his actions. Love is also to be one of the primary descriptions of his people, both individually as well as collectively as his bride, the church. Consider Jesus' words, John 13, 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Or John later in uh, 1 John 4, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever has been born of God knows God. And anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Or, and as the Apostle Paul states in a passage that I believe is just like directly related to Jesus' rebuke of the church here in Ephesus, 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. And maybe even after all that, you, you hear that and you're like, okay, I get it. Like, love is super important to God. I'm with you. But, like, why does that mean that God still has to remove this otherwise perfect church just because of their lack of love? It doesn't make sense. Well, I think the first answer is to remember this. When Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? What does he say? He lists two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments are all the law and the prophets summed up. He says these are the two greatest commandments, the summary of the entire law. And so I don't know how you continue to have a church where you, don't, you abandon obedience to what Jesus says are the most important commandments. How can you say I'm obeying all these other commandments when you don't obey the ones that he says are the two most important ones, the ones that sum up all these commandments. You can't have both. But the second way is found very simply in just remembering what Jesus says here, this symbol he uses to describe the churches, verse uh, 20 of chapter 1, the lampstand. Remembering like why he would use that symbol. For in Jesus' most well-known sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, which we have in Matthew 5 through 7, what does Jesus say to his disciples as it relates to this symbol of a lampstand. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp to put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Which means the purpose of the church is to be a lampstand shining the light of Christ into the dark world so that lost sheep can find their way home to safe safety and safe pasture with him. That's why we're here. But then take that idea and follow it through now. If that's what the church is supposed to be, if our purpose is to be a stand that lifts up the light of Christ, that lifts up the, the love of God so that all people can see it and it draws people to himself, but the church is no longer shining that light as God has revealed himself because of its lovelessness, 
Well, then what's the point of having a lampstand at all when there's no light to shine on top of it? And I know, I get it. Uh, I, I feel it myself, and I'm, I'm, maybe you have the same pushback immediately whenever it comes to reading this letter and hearing this rebuke. And I, and I wonder if even the church of Ephesus had it. People are going to say, okay, so what? So right doctrine doesn't matter? Uh, uh, protecting the church from false teachers who are coming in trying to tear it apart and devour it, that's not important? Um, you know, following God, working for God, planning churches, preaching the gospel, worshiping together, uh, all these things, patiently enduring persecution, that's meaningless? No. No, that's not what Jesus is getting at at all, nor is that what he's saying, but what I believe Jesus is saying to all who have ears to hear, both in Ephesus as well as in the church today, is that in the same way that insufficient water supply made my knowledge of how to fight a fire and how to connect a fire hydrant to a fire truck ultimately become meaningless, so too does a lack of love for God and for others, a lack of an insufficient supply of love for God and for others, leave all those other really good and important things as nothing more than, than kindling on an unlit altar. It's really important stuff, but it's not yet shining. Because remember, how did Jesus say all men would know that we are his disciples? If you remember, it wasn't any of those other things. It wasn't good works. It wasn't right doctrine. It wasn't patient endurance. Jesus said, by this, all people will know you are my disciples. What, Lord? If you have love for one another. That's the defining factor of his people. Love for one another. Which just, you know what? Take, take this out of the first century Put it right here today, 2020. What does that look like for us and for a church today? It means if we're a church that loves to gather on Sunday, we love to uh, sing and pray and give and preach, but we don't actually do any of those things out of a genuine love for God and for his people. We're just kind of going through the motions. It's the Sunday tradition. That's what I do on Sunday. Then our light has gone dark and our lampstand is in danger of being removed. It means, think of this bigger picture. If, if the LGBTQ community in our, in our city right now, if they hear from us all the time what the Bible says about God's good design for sexuality, but they don't also hear how much Jesus loves them, then our light is not shining and our lampstand is in danger of being removed. It means if I can stand beside my black and Asian and indigenous brothers and sisters to worship on a Sunday morning, but I won't stand beside them against the injustices and unequal treatment that they receive just because of the color of their skin. I'm not loving them. Our light is going dark and our lampstand is in danger of being removed. It means if I can spot a heretic a mile away and I can describe penal substitutionary atonement to you, but I'm also bitter and a jerk. And if I can't extend to you the same mercy that God poured out on me in forgiving me of my sin by sending Jesus to die for me, our light has gone dark and our lampstand is in danger of being removed. Again, not at all, not for a second to say that any of those other things aren't important or essential to the life of the church. We need good works. We need right doctrine. We need patient endurance. We need all of those things. But without the, the igniting flame of love, which Paul said in Colossians 3.14, is the thing that binds all those things together in perfect harmony. 
And according to Jesus, all those good works, all those good things, right doctrine, they remain, again, they're, they're kindling on an unlit altar, they're kerosene oil in an unlit lamp, and our city on a hill can end up being nothing more than a smoldering wick. But here's the really good news. The good news that we have revealed about our God and that we're reminded of in places like Isaiah 42 where it says a bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not extinguish. Having revealed this fatal flaw in an otherwise seemingly perfect church but that was endangering their, the very existence of their church, Jesus now reveals the required remedy. He doesn't just say, well, it's too late for you guys. He says, this is what you can do to change that, to, to fix it so that I don't come and remove your lampstand. And look where we see that remedy is at the beginning of verse 5. Look with me there. You see, he lays out a remedy to lovelessness in the church in three parts. He says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. So remember, repent, and just to use another R word, redo. Repent, remember, and redo. Let's just quickly look at each one of these for a minute and talk about what it could look like in our lives or in our church, how we would do that. First of all, remember. Remember from where you have fallen. This isn't a call to, to guilt or to shame. This is a call to just regularly reflect back, to look back on the days when our hearts were first captured by the love of Jesus and then acknowledge all the, the, every way or ways where the level of our love for God is no longer as strong as it was before. We can look back and say, and I know I don't love Jesus like I did back then. And then, in any way you see that, repent. Now, that's not a word that we use a whole lot anymore in these days, and I think that's too bad because it's such an important biblical concept. This whole idea is just like a 180-degree turn away from sin and death and walking in the exact opposite direction towards Christ. So the call is simply, listen, don't take one more step towards anything that's going to rob you of your, your desire and your affections and, and more love for Jesus. Turn the other way. Turn away from those things. And finally, redo. Do, do the works you did at first, which means not simply just making a carbon copy of the exact actions we used to do and then just repeating them necessarily, but more than that, returning to the practices and the pathways that led us into deep love and affection for Jesus that then resulted in actions. Do those things again and see what, what new actions come about. But do those things again. Return to those works you did at first that build up love for Jesus in you, that, that, that will restore that love for him back to you. And really, any of us who are married, any of us who, who are being in a long-term relationship, we totally understand this concept of what it means to look back on the early days of our relationship when you first fell in love with someone. Uh, it's not always the case, but there's a reason for the cliche that sometimes, over time, we can slowly allow the passionate, self-sacrificing Percy Sledge, when a man loves a woman, kind of romanticism that, that defines a lot of our early relationship to give way over time to routine, self-serving, going through the motions kind of existence that looks a lot more like the righteous brothers, you've lost that loving feeling. And the reality is this exact same progression can and does occur within our relationship with God. So as we've seen in our passage this morning, just as the weakening over time of our love for another person can have devastating effects on our marriage relationship, so too 
can the weakening of our love for God and our love for others have a weakening and a devastating effect on our witness, on the purpose for which God has made us into his people, the church? As Daryl Johnson describes this so well, quote, where simple love for Jesus goes, so does the light. But without the love you had at first, service becomes lifeless routine or even drudgery. Without the love you had at first, endurance becomes joyless shuffle of a stone. Without the love you had at first, orthodoxy becomes narrow-minded, nitpicking legalism. Without the love you had at first, hatred of the practices of the Nicolaitans becomes hatred of the Nicolaitans themselves. End quote. And so as you think about the state of your own heart right now, and your own relationship with Jesus. How many of you, when, when you remember back to what your love for God looked like when you initially first became a Christian, can you think of that in your own mind? Like, what did that look like? How many of you would say that the love that you have for Jesus today is not nearly as strong or as bright as it once was? Now, that's not everybody. I, I know that's not everyone's experience. Some of us, like that couple who's been married 50 years and say we love each other more than ever, some of us would say, yeah, maybe I don't have the same pace as I did when I was younger, but, but the love and the depth and the richness of love that I have for Jesus today is greater than anything I had when I first met him. And praise God for that. That's, I think that's the point. That's what it's supposed to be. That, that the depth and the richness of our love for God is something that grows over the years as we know him and serve him and follow him. But if that's not your experience, and remembering the love that you had at first, you see a distancing in your love for God, you see a, a weakening of the affections of him over the years and a faith that's become less passion, more of just like going through the motions, more just kind of a loveless orthodoxy. Then, again, remembering, this remembering that Jesus calls us to, it's, it's not intended to bring shame or guilt. It's intended to bring about repentance and restored relationship with him, restored love. And so the simple question that I want you to ask yourself as you think about this yourself this morning is, first of all, and only you can really answer this question for yourself, when you remember the love that you had for Jesus at first, what were you doing? Uh, what were the practices? What were the works? What were the spiritual pathways that you followed that, that, that stirred your affections for him, that, that, that just caused you to grow in your love for him? What were you doing? Maybe at that time you were just really into like, a prayer journal where you could track and trace the amazing works of God as, he, as you prayed for things and he answered. Maybe it was just making that regular, dedicated time to, to study God's word and to, to know him more that way. Maybe it was sitting in prayer as often as you could. And even silent prayer where you, where you tried to listen as much as you talked. Maybe it was other spiritual disciplines like fasting, generosity. Maybe it was just that Christian community where you got together regularly with other brothers or sisters, like-minded Christians who, who would encourage you in your faith, who you could share openly and honestly with, and doing those things just stirred your affections. You grew in your faith so much. What were the things you were doing when you first fell in love with Jesus? And the second question that only you can answer is, why'd you stop doing those things? Why'd you stop? Um, you know what, there's all kinds of reasons why that could happen. Maybe it was just like you entered into a really busy season. Maybe you have kids now. Maybe you've just started a new job, new career, a new uh, degree, whatever it is, and all of a sudden, 
the, 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 the things that you used to have time for, you feel like I don't have as much time for that anymore. And so for you, maybe returning to the works you did at first is just being able to find new directions, new rhythms, new practices that are going to allow you to still press into Jesus, continue to grow your love for him and avoid that, that loveless condition which Jesus says is so fatal to his people. But maybe for others, you know that the reason you stopped doing those things was simply because you replaced them with other things. You just found other things that you wanted to pursue instead of that. So maybe it was a relationship, and maybe it was a relationship with a person who doesn't know Jesus and isn't going to encourage you to grow in your faith. Maybe it was a pursuit of financial security. Maybe it was a pursuit of just other stuff, fitness. I want to, my, my priority is having six-pack abs. All kinds of things that we just pour ourselves into. Listen, even more religious education, studying religious education so much, we, we can replace the things that stirred our affections for Jesus early on. And gradually, over time, those practices, those pursuits absorbed. They soaked up all the time that we had for those things that initially stirred our affections for Jesus, and we just stopped doing them. And if that's where you're at, if that's the case for you, uh, I, even though it could be hard to look at, the, the real gift of Jesus' remedy here is possibly uncovering what could be hidden idols in your life. It could be uncovering things that you have replaced the things that truly stir your affections for Jesus for other pursuits. And the call is to turn back. The call is to, to repent and return to the love you, heard, you had at first and find, in doing so, finding a love that truly satisfies, that never disappoints, and that causes the light of our witness to shine brightly as Jesus intended it to. Look at verse 7 here as we close. When you look at the promise Jesus offers to those who have ears to hear and those who conquer or those who overcome this loveless condition in their own hearts as well as in the church, although it's stated in this language of the Garden of Eden, this eating from the tree of life and the paradise of God, the promise itself, in the end, is still ultimately a call to relationship. It's a call to relationship. For when Adam and Eve first sinned and were expelled from the Garden of Eden, they're blocked access to the tree of life as well as to the, the, the paradise of God. It represented blocked access to relationship with God as well as his life-giving presence. And if you were looking at one single theme that runs through the entire Bible from that moment that describes the heart of God toward us, it would be this. A loving, merciful, gracious God, again, abounding in steadfast love, who is working throughout history and at great cost to himself in order to restore that broken relationship. That's the whole message of the Bible. God, through history, through his son, Jesus, ultimately, to restore what's been broken and what's been lost in that relationship. He demonstrated that love, as we read in Romans 5, in dying for us while we were yet sinners. He didn't wait for us to clean ourselves up enough. He reached out to us, destroying that dividing wall of hostility in his flesh and making a way for restored relationship with him to find fullness of life with him. That's why John could write in 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. But here's the thing. While Jesus does, yes, in John 14, 21, say this, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he is the one who loves me, which could kind of seem to invalidate Jesus' 
claim his rebuke in this letter because they, they are following his commands, aren't they? Saying, that's how you love me. They're following the commands. Aren't they doing it? But then remembering the rebuke and the warning that Jesus has against the church at Ephesus as well as the church today in calling us to return to the love we had at first is that bare obedience, even kind of begrudging obedience to the commands of God alone without first obedience to what Jesus says are the most important commandments. Love for God, love for our neighbor as ourself. If we're not doing those, obeying those commands first, we're actually not truly obeying those other commands. And we're not truly loving him then. As Jesus said to the Pharisees, the most outwardly religious people of all in that day. He says, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, yet it is they that bear witness about me. The life is found in me. The, the, the joy, the, the hope, everything you're searching for is here. It's not in finding other commandments to follow. It's in relationship with me first. That you refuse to come to me, that you may have life. True obedience says Jesus, to this church at Ephesus as well as to you and I today, begins, first of all, with love for me and then with love for your neighbor. Therefore, remember the love you had at first. Repent and do the works you did at first. Do that. Start there, says Jesus. And that will transform all of your other work and patient endurance. It will transform your witness into having a true power to shine for me. And it will transform all your other works, patient endurance, every other work that you're doing for my name's sake into true, brightly shining obedience from the heart. Amen.